Today's episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast is brought to you by SeatGeek, our presenting sponsor and the only fan-friendly app for buying and selling sports and music tickets. Other sites have gone back to the same old tactic of showing you a lower price and then charging huge fees at checkout. At SeatGeek, the price you see is always the price you pay. Drop your old site experience buying and selling tickets the way it should be to start using SeatGeek. Download the SeatGeek app or go to SeatGeek.com. Today's episode is also brought to you by After the Thrones, our new post-game show on HBO Now that comes on after Game of the Thrones. Late Sunday night, midnight, PT, Monday, 3 a.m., ET. Uh, You can check it out on HBO Now, and then it reruns the following night at around 1 o'clock a.m. on Linear HBO After the Thrones, hosted by Andy Greenwald and Chris Ryan, with special appearances from Mallory Rubin and Jason Concepcion. Check it out, After the Thrones. And we should also mention my new show, Any Given Wednesday, launching June 22nd, Wednesday, 10 p.m. It's happening. Any Given Wednesday, June 22nd. Uh, let's go. Yeah. Clear enough for you. All right. <laughs> yeah. We're taping this on a Monday, and I don't know when it's running. Chris Saka, the legendary angel investor. When did the term angel investor start? Can I ask you a question quick? Yeah. So that jam, do you play that at home alone sometimes? Kind of like do, That's my do song. you light That's the candles Tupac. next to the, to the bath and just play that on loop? Do you know how hard it was to clear that song? <laughs> it was probably one of my three greatest achievements. I love it. It definitely sets he, a vibe. Yeah. Um, I'm glad we're finally doing this. Yeah, thanks We've for having me We've known each other here. a little bit over the last like uh, couple years or so, but um, ever since all the... Basically, when I got suspended on and I started thinking about starting my own thing, what that would look like, and I just kind of went into the abyss of the whole world. How do you start a business? What do people like? What do they invest in? And I became more and more fascinated by all of it. And you've been in that world basically... I would say the last 10 years. I mean, when, when did you really start investing in stuff? I, I moved out to Silicon Valley um, during law school. I was, I was ostensibly a law student. I just knew I never was going to be a lawyer, but that was basically the quickest way to get a seat at the table so that people in Silicon Valley would, would hear me out. And, and you felt like at that point the world was moving towards Silicon Valley and you just wanted to be involved? It, it really was. Everything, you know, so I started going to university for math back when I was in junior high. I, I had a regular life and then at night I would go up to the University of Buffalo and take math classes. I was obsessed with math and computers. I had a math burnout in like 11th grade. Stopped taking any of it. <laughs> What's a math burnout? Did That's you where like just like, explode? Yeah, kind of. There was just number smoke coming out of my ears. It's like I can't do this anymore. So I, I went to the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown, which is like the best academic program in the United States that doesn't have a math or science requirement. Uh, did that, was living abroad in Spain when Netscape went public. And Spain. I remember reading about that in the International Herald Tribune and feeling FOMO. Like, oh man, this internet thing is really starting to happen at scale and I am going to miss it. And so I got back to the United States and wanted to get involved. But as a kid who grew up without any money uh, on the East Coast without a big technical network around me. I didn't know many entrepreneurs. I was trying to figure out a way to get out West. Uh, You needed a few years of work experience in order to get to an MBA program. And so what I realized, there was a back door. You could basically get a law degree, 
move out there during your law studies, you could be in the mix doing work at Fenwick and West is where I ended up working with the top shelf VCs, the top shelf companies out there in the first bubble. And so that's what I did. I kind of hacked the system by going to Georgetown Law School and then working my way into the Valley. How'd you end up at Google? I ended up at Google uh, a strange way. So I, I, I mean, the short bio is I took my law school student loans and I started day trading them. I told the <laughs> law school they hadn't shown up yet. And I, I cashed them and started day trading that money. And I, I made a ton of money on paper. Yeah. Uh, at my height, I was worth $12 million. And uh, Just from day trading? From day trading. Wow. Yeah. Well, I... I there was a little rule called Reg T that I kind of broke where I, I would use that to buy, I would lever up. I would buy way more stock than I could actually afford and then wait for the, um, for the margin call. But ultimately I made $12 million on paper and, um, was living out in, uh, just all over the place. But I was spending time with some guys in Park City, Utah, some buddies of mine who own a record store, sleeping on their couch, hanging out in the store, day trading, ski bombing while ostensibly in law school. And then, uh, the market fell apart. So spring of 2000, I uh, I lost it all plus $4 million more in, in a matter of days. So that left me $4 million in the hole. It's 25 years old. I uh, I had nothing to show for it other than, you know, a bunch of stories, basically. Yeah. And so I needed to take a job as a lawyer. So I made my way out. I worked at Fenwick during the day. Um, and at night, I was just grinding, moonlighting, doing anything I could to generate cash to pay back uh, all this debt. I was able to negotiate the debt down to two and an eighth million from four million, and so um, I just worked it off. I was I was doing contracts on Elance. I was taking jobs off of Craigslist. Uh, Craigslist, I did a voiceover for the a Craigslist book once. thing sounds a little shady. Yeah, I Did mean, you have, you have to use your body <laughs> and a little bit of mild lubricant. Bit. It was just, it was. I mean, I needed the money, but you know, literally, I just did everything I could to try and crawl back out of the hole. Eventually, I started working with a bunch of startup companies. Uh, for some of them, I was their business development guy. For some of them, I was a lawyer. Some of them, I was their strategist, helping them raise money or name the product or design the the consumer funnel. I just. I was kind of faking it till you make it. If you came to me and asked me if uh, I was good at something, I was like, yeah, sure. In fact, I had a business card once that said Chris Saka, and I would go to these networking events and people were like, oh, yeah, you sound like a smart kid. Things will work out for you. And I don't think they realized I was check to check. Like, I was going to have to move back to Buffalo. Yeah. Um, and can you imagine a worse fate than having to move back to Buffalo? And so, uh, So I eventually was able to put something together. I basically created a, an entity called the Salinger Group. It sounded really erudite and it's a fancy. Great title. It sounds mnemonic, right? Yeah. Like people, and so uh, my then best friend, which is now my wife, Crystal, made me <clears throat> a really cool business card that said uh, Salinger Group, and I was the principal, and I would hand it out to people, and they're like, oh, yeah, I know you guys. You guys do good work. And my career started taking off. And, uh, and it was all smoke and mirrors? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't even have an address on it because I lived in a hovel in Foster City, California. I had no phone number because I didn't have one. Yeah. Um, you know, it was all it was all BS. But uh, as a result, I was able to claw my way back in the game. I went to every networking meeting in Silicon Valley ever. So the Churchill Club, the World Internet Forum, the Chinese Software Professionals Association, the Indus Entrepreneurs, which are basically Indians, Pakistanis, Bangladeshis. And... Um, Oftentimes, they had like a $20 entrance fee to their networking events, so I would just sneak in through the kitchen because I speak Spanish. 
and just glad hand. And before you know it, um, you know, I just have this rule. If somebody makes eye contact, I, I've convinced myself they want to know you. And so I just go in yeah. for it. I just press flesh and, and, and made it work. And so eventually I had a stable of companies I was working for. Um, and, um, and Google found me in one of those companies and pulled me in in 2003. And then you were there for four or five years. I was right? there for exactly four years. Okay. I, I basically stayed till I vested. So, right. Um, an amazing, amazing place to work. I mean, we literally could feel a scale that had never been felt before on the planet. I mean, we, we had a globe where you could visualize in real time, every, a dot would flow out for every single search being conducted on the planet on our system at the time. And I mean, in the middle of the night, there'd be searches coming from the Gobi Desert. You know, there'd be searches coming from the tip of Madagascar. There are just, you're just like, wow, we're building something at a scale that is just hard for humans to really process. What is like in 2005, what's the sense of the ceiling of Google at that point? By then we were public and, and we knew we were unstoppable. And when right. I got there in 03, I think I was like number 700 at the company. And yet it still felt like one of the smallest startups ever because they believe in radical sharing of information. So every meeting you take notes and then those meetings can be seen by anybody else in the company. And there, there was just, uh, there was so much transparency and inclusion among employees there. Every Friday they did an all hands where they went over like the board of directors deck to, you know, a few thousand people. And we rarely had any leaks because they treated everybody like an owner of the company. Yeah. And so we knew we were working on something huge and important there. It felt incredibly special to me when I left. uh, I mean, I got to do all kinds of stuff like I was. Well, hold on. Wait a second, though, because there was a time with Google that everybody was like, yeah, this is great. This is really useful. But how the hell do you monetize it? Well, I love that. When did that, that. When did that end? Yeah, but so that's the funny thing. I got there in 03, and it was already making millions and millions of dollars and wildly profitable. And that was the big secret. They're like, don't let Microsoft know how much money we're making because they're asleep at the wheel. Right. I mean, in fact, one of my first jobs there was to build out our data centers, our big server farms. So these things, uh, you know, a billion dollars goes into each of them, and they require as much power as a city like a Buffalo, New York. I mean, they're, yeah. they're massive. They only employ maybe a dozen or a couple dozen people, but they're just these massive buildings jammed packed of really hot computers that are constantly churning through search index information and Gmail and Blogger and all their other stuff. And so if you know the data center capacity a company has, you can infer from that how big they are. So one of the first things they did when I was at Google was send me around the country and ultimately the planet as the Salinger group yeah, and buy up data center space. So people didn't know they were dealing with Google, but I had a billion dollar budget. So I was just knocking on doors in Oregon. I, actually at Oregon, I had Department of Homeland Security called on me once because they're like, who is this guy driving around on a rental car? He's got a very suspicious looking beard and he's going town to town asking all these questions about electrical power and fiber optics. Like this guy's got to be Al Qaeda or something. Right. But, um, you know, I, I was empowered in a way that nobody, no company ever empowers a young person like that. And they realized pretty early that all the data that they were bringing in could be used in 7,000 different business advantages. Yeah. I mean, one of the things they, they learned was the thing that you're looking for, they might not have even known ahead of time to go find for you. So if they cast the widest net possible and gathered as much information as possible, 
that dramatically increase the likelihood they would have great answers and ultimately that they might find some synergy between their businesses. So one of the things that motivated the YouTube acquisition was YouTube just had all the video, right? Some of it was violative of rights and they were very wary of bringing on any litigation as a result, but they'd started their Google video enterprise and people just weren't uploading to it at scale. And yet YouTube, even back then in like 06, already had so much cool stuff in it. And so at Google's mission is this mission statement, organize all the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. And that was something that wasn't just like stapled on the wall. We would talk about it every time we made a decision to do something there. But I, I had one of the best times ever. I mean, I got to start a group that's now called Access, so it's fiber and wireless and all the stuff that competes with the carriers and competes with the cable companies. Yeah. And so I got to be a rebel, but a rebel backed by billions of dollars. I got to go to this FCC Spectrum auction and play the biggest hand of poker that's ever been played. I mean, I got to bid the $4.7 billion price just to call bullshit on Verizon. Yeah. And where the hell else in the world do you get to do that? Those are amazing times. So when I, I left... It was starting to get a little big and political and provincial, you know, department by department. You've worked in big companies yeah, recently. Yeah. Uh, but uh, so I, I left because I was really missing working in a startup environment and with startups. And when I did, there was a New York Times article that came out a few days later. I was at my parents' house for the holidays and it said something along the lines of, why would this guy leave the greatest job in the world? And I sat there in my parents' house and cried. I'm like, oh, my God, what did I do? <laughs> But it really was the greatest job in the world and one of the greatest places to work ever. But and it seemed like it had a lot of a lot of great people. It's almost like one of those NBA teams where they just had a lot of young, talented people. And you look back and you go, wow, a lot of people are on that team. Well, one of the things they did that's kind of like an NBA team yeah. is they, they hired just for sheer capability, not necessarily for culture fit. And so they were just like, if we get the smartest, most driven, ambitious people in the world all to work here, let's see what happens. And so... But that's... there. That was, see, I, I disagree with that strategy, but it worked. No, but you've seen some teams implode as a result, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, I was going to say yeah. that's... And so, and so other teams are like, well, I don't know if this guy's going to work well with this guy. But, you know, a lot of raw talent, but... but you know, if you look at Eric Schmidt and Larry and Sergey as the owners and general managers, they're like, let's just get the smartest people in the world here and then see what happens. And so there were definitely some people on the spectrum there who had no interpersonal skills. There were yeah. definitely some assholes. Um, you know, but we would hire like the world puzzle champion, you know, and just say like, look, come to Google. And we'll, it turns out the world puzzle champion was a total badass and amazing engineer. <laughs> um, but we would hire um, hackers, like actual criminal hackers who had done time uh, because of their sheer talent. And this is like a path. That to sounds like a Netflix show. Yeah, we, we really did. I, I had a contractor work for me there once and he was one of the best employees we ever had. Um, and I was like, look, we'd really like you to come on board. I don't know why we keep paying your, your boss. You should come over here. And he's like, well, I have something to tell you. I, you know, I actually was convicted of computer fraud and abuse and did some time. And I was like, ah, bummer. And I surfaced it up to the top and they're like, he sounds really talented. Like how do you know? And so he worked there. I mean, this is a guy who had to change his name to kind of expunge his record, but yeah. he ended up working there and he was great. Uh, but that's a company that focused on talent, unlike any I've ever seen. And that's why I think there's a really powerful group of alumni there. You know, if you know somebody from Google, the odds are they are they're smart and driven and unbound by practicality. 
They, they think in a way that frees them of the limits of rational thought. You know, we were taught to just build things that would dramatically change the lives of users that would make out of scale amounts of money that would, that would have some unbounded impact on the world and to forget initially how it was going to pay for itself. Like, don't, you know, don't let your mind be burdened by thinking about how this thing, you know, uh, might work, just make it work. And then we'll figure out how to pay for it along the way. That's a revolutionary way of thinking about building a business. Like Gmail changed everything in mail. And yet it was a horrible business idea up front, right? Just let's offer a shitload of storage to everybody. Let's, let's change it from constantly having to delete your mail to just keeping it all. Let's keep all your mail there all the time. And yet, I remember they were genius. They reached out to me. What was it like? Oh three, oh four, when they yeah. came over Gmail, 04, and they're yeah. like, "Hey man, we're, we we're big fans in the office. We have this coming. Do you want to lock up some of your names? Yeah. for yeah. Gmail." And I'm like, "I, I guess. I, like, why? Well, I already have. I have very happy with my AOL." <laughs> and then, but yeah, I mean, the way they 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 pulled everything off, it, it did seem like there was a catch. It's like, yeah, you get all the storage, get this email address, and we want absolutely nothing. Well, what we did was we had data that showed if you were using Gmail, you were just going to be more of a searcher, right? Yeah. I mean, we we had all this data that showed the more you search, the more money we made. You want to so, keep people on the platform. Yeah, so let's install a Google Toolbar. And if you have a Google Toolbar, you're that much more likely to search. Just like if Amazon knows they got you on Prime, you're that much more likely to buy stuff. And so the more they can keep you within the Google family of products, the more likely it is you're going to go to the places that make them money. Being free was a great idea. Being free is an incredible, I'm not going to say Silicon Valley came up with the concept, but it has contributed to so much damn growth there. So back yeah. to your question about when people were like, how's Google ever going to make any money? I, I love that question. I love that question about Twitter. I spent the first couple of years as a Twitter investor trying to convince people that Twitter was going to be a business. And finally, I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm not here to convince you anymore. Just give me your stock. Yeah. And I just started buying it all because I was like, if you That's can't see. That's a famous see, story. You went around and you bought up all the employees. Wait, explain I, it quickly. I mean, I, well, so just to complete the timeline, I left, I left Google and started investing on my own. While I was at Google, I made two angel investments, as you said. So individual investments in startups. One was in a company called Photo Bucket that we sold to News Corp. That worked out well. And thankfully, because I'd written a credit card check as my angel investment there i needed that money yeah uh and the second was into twitter i was one of the, i was in the seed round at twitter evan williams one of the co-founders uh and a good friend of mine invited me into that but i needed that 25 grand back someday that was real money for me i you know as much as i worked at google in the early days i did not get google rich it wasn't i, I left there worth just under a million dollars which in real life is rich but not for angel investing not for you what rich. you wanted to do. yeah yeah not for what i want to do and so you know, most of the angel investors, you know, are worth a couple hundred million dollars and they just kind of shotgun checks of 25 to 50 grand out and a little spray and pray. And hopefully one of them hits. But my investment in, in Twitter, I really needed to get that money back someday. And so I just started showing up to the company unannounced. Jack didn't even really like me. Um, Jack Dorsey, Jack the, Dorsey, yeah. the, the inventor, the now CEO again. Uh, I was too businessy for him because I wanted it to work. And so well, and, and most of the time that I mean, that was pretty atypical for you to just show up and be like, I have some stock. I want to be involved. Well, in the early days, it wasn't because I didn't have any other option. I didn't. I left Google. I didn't have any source of income. I didn't have a ton of money in the bank. And I needed to, to the extent I thought possible, de-risk these things by having some impact, right? Yeah. 
one of my rules for investing then and now has been only invest in things where I think I personally can impact the outcome. So it has to be a pre-existing, like before I get involved, it has to be awesome. And then I think I can make it just that much more awesome by my involvement. So when you play blackjack, you sit in the third base seat. Because <laughs> you can affect the hand can, the most. I can watch. I can count. You can in. watch everyone's hand, and third base more. is yeah. the key seat, and yeah. you need to affect the outcomes. Yeah. No. You know what I do? I actually studied so much math. I can't sit at a Vegas table at all. It drives me crazy. You so know what, the odds are against you. Uh, yeah. I mean, I used to write papers against that. You know, about, about like the five cents on the dollar you lose five point three cents, I think, on every spin of the roulette wheel and stuff. But what I like to do instead is go to Vegas, get all messed up, and then with my buddies do like kind of side bets on, hey, let's do over under on her age right there. And then, you know, part of it is the guessing and part of it is you have to get her to reveal her, her driver's <laughs> license to validate the bet. Or I'll, I like to get two total strangers in a push-up contest against each other right on the floor of Caesars or something like that. There's just a dramatic thrill for that and it's even money. And uh, it allows you to take advantage of your friends who might be weaker minded or, uh, you know, but this sounds like the greatest up. Snapchat feed ever. It could. You're just walking could around be. forcing like people it. to do push-ups. Dude, you're yourself. building a media empire. Like how you think. You're looking. You're <laughs> constantly you. looking for new sources of <laughs> content. You. Yeah. You you know you wire yourself. So wait, Twitter. Yeah. Well, people Twitter, say was, Twitter can't make money, but I mean, we were it, Twitter was pulling together so much data that it. I remember an early meeting, 2009. Marissa Mayer, who was you know she, now she's CEO of Yahoo. At the time, she was still at Google. We gave her access to the Firehose. So we gave her a little chunk of Twitter data. Uh, and we said, go parse that and see what you think. And she came back and said, you know what's amazing? 62% of the URLs that are in like three days worth of Twitter data had never been seen by the Google crawler. So Google has this incredibly pervasive and comprehensive index where it's constantly out spidering and rolling up all the pages it can find on the web. And 62% of the links that we had in Twitter, they had never seen. So it had, we knew right away, it had this incredible, incredible corpus body of data. Plus it was real time in a way that the other sites weren't. And so we knew we were onto something great and that it wouldn't be that hard to monetize both in a stream as well as on a search basis. And yet, it was just the number one objection I would get when I would speak on behalf of Twitter or be on a panel. It's just, how is this thing ever going to make money? I'm just like, if it's not obvious to you right now, then maybe you should be in another line of work. But people but are still asking that in April 2016. For a company that makes a couple billion dollars a year, I love it. Like, yeah. it it's just, it's fascinating. I mean, when I see the same, I'm not a Snapchat investor, but I see the same thing where people are like, will Snapchat be able to turn the you know, attention of a few hundred million daily active users into money? What, you know, the jury, you know, it remains to be seen. You're like, come on, are you kidding me? Of course, right, they've got all this attention. Flipping that around, though, I mean, MySpace had a lot of users at one point. Yeah, but they hadn't turned on the monetization that we did. In fact, they farmed it out to us at Google. We were doing basically remnant AdSense ads where we did like a $900 million three-year guarantee uh, with MySpace to just monetize that with some really poorly targeted AdSense ads. So there wasn't a native format. Like if you think about Twitter's advertising, those tweets, the, the advertising format itself is a tweet, right? That was a genius notion that Evan Williams came up with is just the, the ad shouldn't be a banner and it shouldn't be some ad cast off to the side, but it should be the tweet. It should be the trend. It should be native and specific to that platform. And that's worked incredibly well for them. Um, with Twitter, 
I've been frustrated by them the last few years. I know some people that work for Twitter and we talk about it. Always be, I'd be asking some of these same questions. I, what I'd never understood with Twitter was why they were so afraid to innovate and take chances and grow the product. And their attitude from 2009 to like 2013 was basically, look, we're Twitter. We're doing great. We don't need this other stuff. That's how I felt as a user. We don't need to do this because people are already using us and people in all these countries are tweeting and we're affecting elections. So we're fine. And now it seems like they're like, oh, shit, we need to do stuff. Yeah, I, I mean, look, nobody's more frustrated than I am. I know, you're I mean, the most I'm, famously frustrated person. Yeah, I mean, just to, for the sake of reference, by the time of the IPO, I, I own around 18% of the stock. I yep. mean, I, I was the largest, my, my kind of group of funds were the largest shareholder in the company. And so uh, I've there's literally no one who's as frustrated as I am by what I see, too, as just stagnant growth. You know, one of the things that I think happened... And a theme you've come across in your own career and you've seen in other people's careers is that this was a company that was previously run by the founders. And um, in 2010, the, one of the co-founders, Evan Williams, who was CEO, was pushed out in favor of the COO, who was a business guy. And, um, and for a long time, basically the next three to four years, maybe five years, there was no real product person at Twitter, there was no one who lives and breathes and thinks differently about product. Instead, it was a, a company where we had an incredibly successful uh, head of revenue and Adam Bain. He's amazing, and and he was innovating a little bit on revenue product. But we didn't really have at the very top of the company a core consumer product person driving innovation there. And we see this sometimes in companies that are no longer run by the founder. You don't necessarily have the moral conviction to go ahead and change everything up. I mean, one of the things I admire about Snapchat is that they're innovating before they have to. They keep making changes on the platform, even though everyone likes the thing they've got today. And one of the reasons they can do that is because Evan can just wave his hand and say, make it so. Zuck does something really similar. Uh, you know, Zuck's even been successful just buying companies by waving his hand, just saying, the Oculus guys are doing something surreal over there. They should just be working here. The Instagram guys are beating us at our own game you know, with image sharing. They should just be working here. And, and I think Twitter didn't have that for the longest time. At the leadership level, they didn't have anyone with the presence and the gravitas of a founder, an inventor. And so they couldn't do anything bold. It was, it was being managed more like, uh, you know, like by consultants in a way. You know, the board didn't have great leadership. And so the company went sideways for a while. Isn't that the story of how so many big, powerful companies, no matter what genre you're talking about, that's the biggest issue, right? When people try to basically protect the lead versus, you know, to use football is a good metaphor for a lot of different things. But in football, sometimes when you're just handing the ball off three times and punting, it's a bad idea. And sometimes you actually have to do a little play action, things like that. And I think like places like Rolling Stone, Sports Illustrated, I think ESPN has been in this place this decade where they're trying to hold the lead and say they're trying to fix SportsCenter for six, seven years because that was their meal ticket instead of saying, wait a second, SportsCenter actually is becoming increasingly irrelevant every year. Instead of trying to fix it, 
we should be trying to figure out what the next sports center is and putting basically ESPN's a tech company and they don't realize it yet. Yeah. They're still thinking like a TV network. It's like, you guys are actually a tech company now they, and they, and they don't appreciate that. So go back to Google on your point. One of the most pivotal moments in the history of Google was buying YouTube because it was the first public acknowledgement in the history of that company that somebody outside of Google was doing something that we had tried way better than we were. Yeah. Right. And there's an amazing document that's internal there, like a postmortem of why did Google video fail? And it was just, there was just a lot of conceit in the product that we internally, I mean, you hire that many smart people and there's just hubris there. There's like, Hey, we, we can do no wrong. We were forcing people to download a piece of software called VLC rather than just use flash. You know, flash is a proprietary standard, but we were like, Hey, we're better than that. We use something called open source, but it just wasn't working. We were pre-screening all content for copyright. Turns out at that time, a lot of copyright holders wanted their stuff on YouTube because it was generating buzz and views and that kind of stuff. And so as a result, when Google finally said, look, this YouTube stuff is better than anything we could make, it really cracked open a wave of acquisitions there and an attitude across Silicon Valley that I think has empowered some of the greatest companies to continue evolving to just say, not everything amazing is necessarily going to get built in-house organically. We, we might not be able to step outside ourselves and see our own assumptions. I mean, yeah. I, I once, ESPN had that with the ESPN phone. Yeah. Remember that? They made their own phone. Had to be the plan. They threw. They created this whole division. And really, they should have just done a deal with a phone company that had all the existing infrastructure and just figured out a way to add ESPN scores to it, and they would have won and not spent any of the money. They would have crushed it, right? It's funny. um, A guy you're working with now, Evan Williams over at Medium. Yeah. Evan and I are good buddies. Smart dude. He's different than smart. He's like from the future. And so Evan and I are buddies, but when it comes to product... Yeah, I think I'm a good critic of current products, and I don't consider myself to be a visionary of future products. Evan just lives a few years ahead of the rest of us. I mean, yeah. literally a couple of years ago, he was pounding the table saying, live video, live video. We need live video. And nobody at Twitter was listening to him. Nobody's building it. And now look at what's changing everything. It's Periscope and it's Facebook Live. It's just... There's no doubt about it. I mean, it's Twitch. It's it's all these things. Meerkat was kind there. of the the turning. If there was a thirty for thirty for tech, <laughs> the eight days of Meerkat would yeah. be like the best documentary. Yeah, the eight days graph. of Meerkat was seemed like the next big thing. Mm-hmm. Then Twitter just annihilated it. Yeah, Meerkat. Um, the technical execution was not their strong suit, and then building on top of Twitter's graph was a bummer. Yeah. So, um, but point being, Evan. Evan's superpower is finding and identifying the assumptions that you and I don't know we're even making. The things we're just taking for granted, the things that just seem implicitly like the rules, he can find those and turn them upside down. Yeah. And that's why he's serially successful, blogger, Twitter, and uh, and Medium now, which is just huge and blowing up. And your traditional business guy just doesn't think like that. Your traditional operator, traditional MBA and COO just doesn't have that kind of vision. And so what's setting some companies apart from the rest, you know, there are companies that are grinding out, trying to find a 6% bottom line improvement, you know, so they can issue a dividend. But when you really look at Silicon Valley, at the ones that are growing by leaps and bounds that are blowing people's minds, there is an independence of thought that's just unbounded by reality. And so, they can see into the future, they can make bold predictions, and they can 
They can really stake the future of the product on things that you and I might not see yet. You never told me how Twitter was going to make money. (laughs) I mean, Twitter, (laughs) like literally, that's the funny thing. Twitter has a user problem. Definitely not a money problem. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, in fact, you know, they report earnings tomorrow. By the time people are here, they will have reported earnings. Most of Wall Street expects their monetization per user to have gone up and then the jury's out on whether they're going to have more users or not probably a mild increase but they they have figured out how to monetize the attention you spend there they just haven't evolved the way you engage with those tweets to make more and more people go there i mean it's frustrating to hear people say twitter may never go mainstream and you're like okay so 67 million americans use it a month that's more than watch all the major sports leagues combined um but uh, but it, it could be more. And compared to Facebook, it looks like a small network. I always say I'm buying blank stock, like I'm buying Marcus Smart stock, like talking about athletes teams. Uh, I'm not literally buying Twitter stock, but I I wouldn't rule out Twitter yet. Well, I know. I mean, I know yeah. you're way too close to this conversation, but the the database they have and how important it is in weird little circles of people's lives. I don't see how that fades away. They, There's nowhere to move to from Twitter. Yeah, they've got something to interest everyone in there. That's the crazy thing, and that's so frustrating. You bang your head against the wall. You're just like, everything sports is in there. Everything politics is in there. Everything news is in there. Every hobby you could ever think of, every environmental issue, every celebrity thing, it's all in there. They just do a horrible job of surfacing that to you, right? So there's the serendipitous feed, which some of us have adapted our mind to, like, all right, let's spin the arbitrary wheel of interestingness and see what comes up when I refresh this. And that's kind of a fun, distracting mode, but there's only so many brains that want to engage that way. Other people want to compartmentalize the way they've learned from newspapers and television. People want programming. They want curation. They want best of. And The mute button was three years too late. I think I was calling <laughs> for that in like 2011 because when you unfollow somebody, they know. That's political. And yeah. you need, yeah, yeah. it's, you yeah. need some way to unfollow somebody without actually unfollowing them. Yeah. Um, I have a lot of muted people in my life. There's a, there's a tool called Twitter counter that it's unaffiliated with Twitter, but you can go there, plug in your account and then you can see who's unfollowed you like ranked by how many followers they have. Uh, And so you can see the power follows and unfollows over time. I'm sure I get unfollowed a lot during moments like Patriots playoff games or like the Celtics game on Sunday. I mean, I think, I think, Tom Brady's a felon, and so I... Yeah, that uh, hurts my feelings. Actually, if I say that on your show, that's going to get quoted somewhere, right? So, I mean, I don't know if anyone's actually proven Well, you're a Buffalo fan. Felon. No, yeah. it's, it's, yeah, you, yeah. you sports hate Tom okay. Brady. I you sports, don't actually... I sports hate Tom Brady. You don't actually hate Tom I've Brady. I've met him once in real life. He seems like a really nice guy. Like, devoted He's a husband. Nice, guy. nice parent. Great guy. But just him you and Belichick You would have loved him if filthy. he was on the Bills. <laughs> no, they're filthy. They're filthy combatants. So, that said... Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, God. I knew this was going to come up today. I love it. <laughs> the, the, it had to come up. Well, we've won a lot of Super Bowls. That's painful. I know. Have you seen the Four Falls of Buffalo yet? I, I, I was still at ESPN when we were talking about that idea. I, uh, it's tough. I, I thought it was too long. I watched There's it. There's only so much pain you can relive with the <laughs> Buffalo Bills. <laughs> I watched it once alone, and then I watched it once with my mom and dad, uh, and my wife walked in and we were all crying and she's like, what is this? Like, why do you, why does it keep, why do you keep replaying it? I'm just openly weeping. Those so are tough years. You saw Twitter, you were super early on Twitter and you were super early on Uber. What did those two, uh, 
super early opinions have in common? Yeah, so Uber uh, was something started by my buddy Garrett Camp, originally just with his own car. I mean, he, he had a car and a driver, and he built an app so that the rest of us could try it and use it. Um, and we were having jam sessions, is what Travis Klanek, now the CEO, he was an advisor to the company and a co-founder back in the early days. We were having jam sessions about what it could be and what it would look like. And Can you explain what a jam session is to people? Oh, yeah, because we've been to some jam sessions yeah, together. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but... Uh, well, hold on. You got to explain it because somebody's listening to that and they don't know what that means. Yeah, yeah. A, a jam session is a, a, a free form, usually free form. They can be mildly moderated, but free form discussion on they, they there's no real agenda. They can be on the future of technology, on policy, on who's running for president, on uh, which companies are going down, that kind of thing. But so you'll just be like, I'm going to invite these twelve people. They're going to come over. We're going to have dinner, and then we're going to shoot the shit for three hours about where's TV going next year. Yeah. So I remember a, there was a jam session back at South by Southwest Interactive 2006. It was in Gary Vaynerchuk's hotel room. I don't know if you come across Gary V in your travels, but it was Gary, uh, myself, Travis Klanick, Garrett Camp. I think Dave Morin was there, Michael Galpert. Uh, uh, I'm gonna, I'm, Owen Brainerd was there. He's now money manager to everyone, and... Silicon Valley, uh, and my now the guy who runs my venture fund day to day, Matt Mazio. That's where I met him. Was in that jam session, and we stayed up till the sun came up, yelling at each other about companies and making bold predictions about what was going to work and what was going to fail. And everybody comes with their own biases, and it's just it's like busting balls and shouting over top of one each other, but but learning from each other and kind of building a bond that way. And so this is one of the ways that products get built in the early days. Is you sit in a room and yell at each other and test each other's assumptions and think wildly and make bold predictions. I mean, Travis spent a lot of time at our house, uh, the, the Uber CEO now spent a lot of time at our house up in Truckee, California, where I live a lot of the year. And, um, he's legendary for being able to spend eight hours in a hot tub. In fact, he can spend so much time in a hot tub. We put a whiteboard near our hot tub so that he could write down things he was thinking about while he was pacing around in our hot tub. But we would, talk for hours and hours and hours about what Uber could be. I mean, in the earliest days of that company, we were talking about its global reach. We were talking about how Uber wasn't just about moving people around. It was about moving any atoms in the world around, anything, that we would have more information about how the world moved than any company before in history had ever had. And, and the original Uber idea was basically like, I wish I could call a black car that would show up at a moment's notice. Yep. Somebody had that idea, and then somebody else said, that should be a company, and then we're off. Yeah, Garrett had that idea, and, and, in, and in the way that makes Garrett unique, he didn't just have that idea. Ideas are cheap. Execution is what matters. Idea, uh, Garrett started coding it up and hired a guy named Oscar Salazar, who was the first coder at, at Uber, to start building it. And he started letting friends use it and bunking around with it, and thus Uber was born. Uh, and they had to get the name. It was originally called Uber Cab. Yeah. Do you want to, Do you know where the name Uber came from? I think they they had to buy it from somebody, right? I remember yeah, reading I did about that deal. this once. I did that yeah. deal. It was pretty somebody funny. good, somebody big, right? Somebody here in L.A. Yeah. So it was Universal Records. <laughs> wow. So uh, this, I think this story has been told. I'm probably breaking an NDA telling it, but uh, but yeah, we found out. So Uber Cab. I mean, this is after the company had raised some money. It was a real thing. I mean, I, I was just gonna say. Back to those jam sessions. In the early days, this thing hadn't even been incorporated yet, hadn't raised any money. You know, one of the things that a lot of these Silicon Valley companies have 
in common is that the guys who go on to become the investors are helping way before they've actually gotten money in the company. They're part of that initial thought process. They're part of trying to build it out and test the assumptions and think about hiring the next couple of people and getting the first few years. Users. It's a way of investing without actually investing because you want to make sure if when you do invest, you've already kind of helped shape it a tiny bit. Yeah. I mean, an, an investor is a collaborator. You're, you know, if, if I were going to invest in your company, there's, you're basically, we, we always use this parlance like these investors gave us money. But it's not a magnanimous thing, right? Yeah. I'm looking for a return. But you're also, as the entrepreneur, you're saying, I have to believe that in exchange for letting these guys buy some of my stock, my remaining stock is going to be worth more as a result. That these guys aren't just bringing money, but they're bringing enough other value, enough help, whether it's with strategy or hiring or whatever it is, that my remaining stock is going to be worth more. And, and so... A lot of us, our model is to just dive in and be helpful early on, and then we'll talk about how to invest later. But that's evolved over the last 10 years. I mean, initially, the VC the VC people were a little more, I don't know, cold, and now it seems like your generation and a lot of the people that are either your friends or your rivals are have that mindset where they want to collaborate as well as invest. Well, it used to be, you know, the venture capitalists were mostly bankers investment bankers because yeah. the exit path was taking your company public yeah when the first bubble evaporated um you know and everything crashed the bankers all moved on there was no public market exit so the banker vcs were shit out of luck the other thing that happened was the original founders of all those web 1.0 companies were mostly mba types because it was a lot of hand wavy bullshit a lot of smoke and mirrors they left town too. And so what was left was the Y Combinator resurgence, the actual engineers being empowered to run their companies, the makers being empowered. Open source comes along. Now you don't need millions of dollars to start your company. You can start it on a few thousand dollars, uh, that kind of thing. And so there was a democratization there that I think empowered a different type of founder and a different type of investor. And you know, as Garrett was a testament to, you could just hack together an app uh, and get something like Uber started. But and the big thing with Uber was just they were worried about, what, the taxi cab unions, whether people would want to get in a car with somebody that was sent to them on an app. I mean, there was kind of a public fear. It was almost like in the 1999, 2000, 2001 range when everyone was so terrified to buy anything online. Remember sure, that? Sure. That's so go, interesting. If I put my credit card on there, what's good? they'll know. They'll know everything. Yeah. So that's interesting because we had... Our initial vision was, look, this is a lot safer than a cab. A yeah. cab is such an anonymized transaction for both the driver and the passenger. I mean, you, there's so many assaults and so many robberies in both directions there that it's a really unsafe transaction. Whereas, Especially with, in Vegas. It, yeah, it's you want enough money and you're just never you're seen gonna, again. You're they drive to the desert. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, whereas, whereas with Uber, there's total knowledge about who's on either end of that transaction. And so, you know, it's frustrating sometimes when assaults get uh, assaults by Uber drivers get published because it sucks that that happens. Like I, you know, but but you're having they hundreds get, of thousands of rides like you're not all of them are going to. Yeah. I mean, at, at scale, you know, I like to say like Walmart employs a couple million people. Right. If you look at a couple million people and then you look at the daily murder statistics, the odds are incredibly high that 
a handful of Walmart employees murdered someone last night. Mm. And so Let's that's just what that. happens when you start working with big numbers. <laughs> right. But with Uber, and this is not, I'm not an official Uber spokesperson, this is not a great talking point, but my point is that the reason that bad things get reported is because you know exactly who the driver was. You know exactly who picked you up and where they took you. You have an electronic record of it. And so it's actually way safer for individuals in Uber because there's that much more information. There's accountability. And it's way safer for drivers as a result, too. And so there will always be exceptions to that, and it sucks. But, um, but we knew from the beginning, like, this is going to be a thing that's safer. We also knew it was going to take a lot of drunk drivers off the road. And so it was a company that it, it's funny to me because I think Uber has a culture that can seem tone deaf sometimes. And some of the things that come out of the company are just, are just bad PR. But in reality, we actually believe Uber is a good thing for the planet. It, it's you know legitimately who it's a good thing for? Lives. Who? Uh, people with kids. Mm-hmm. I, I think that there's no way to prove this, but it has to be um, people who have kids who no longer has to be like, all right, honey, you drive this time and I'll be the one that drinks. Like that was a thing. And now it's like, let's just Uber. I think my theory is that people with kids are just getting bombed at a record rate now because they don't have to worry about driving. Well, people, you know, there's going to be a lot of mistake kids. This next generation is going to be a lot of mistake third kids. I thought you guys were done. Eh. You know, a lot of people put their kids in in an Uber because they know whether they're going to make it somewhere or not. I I have a buddy in San Francisco who used to put his kids in Uber to go to school up in Sausalito. It it could. And there's Uber for kids specifically. There's a few of those that have started and stuff like that. But um, I mean, I certainly, my kids will likely by the time they're of driving age they'll never get driver's license they'll be, we'll have autonomous cars so so you think that's going to happen i mean do you have a tesla do you ever ridden in one of those teslas are amazing they are amazing have you taken your hands off the wheel um i couldn't because it's scary right i i just say i couldn't do it it's scary but it's so much safer they just released some data yesterday that show that it's way safer and they have so many accidents that have been avoided even just with that driving assist that they have. My wife than got if you were one. driving personally. I told Kimmel about it, about the hands-free thing. He's uh-huh. like, this is unbelievable. So people are masturbating and crying like all they around totally the country are. as they, they totally drive. Are. I was like, yeah, this is a, <laughs> a new wrinkle for highways. It's <laughs> highway masturbation. I mean, if you have you seen the Google cell, like the, the they call it the gondola because there's no wheel in it. You're just kind of sitting there and you have nothing you can do. Like, but... I don't want, they I'm, I'm too they're old because I'm so scared of all this stuff. And they're scary, but this they're is the most evil science fiction movie nobody's made yet. <laughs> is when somebody just hacks in and takes over they the self driving cars. That is a real concern. Yeah. They could very much be hackable. Um, but these things are fascinating. My, I mean, it's so much safer. Humans are horrible machine operators. This is true. And and particularly sixteen year old humans. Well, particularly the the last five years. Now that everybody looks at their phone as they're driving, there's, there's so got to be so many more accidents than usual from that. Robots are just a lot better at this. Nobody yeah. wants to admit it, but they're a lot better. Yeah. And so, uh, so you you think in the next ten years, it's it's literally going to be up to state legislatures and regulators. You know, this oh, that'll is, go it great. is not. I mean, the technology's there. So yeah. tens of millions of miles have been driven by Google, and there have been two accidents. One was human intervention. That caused the accident. And the other one was a, a two mile an hour plus fifteen mile an hour collision with a with a bus, and so uh, that's over tens of millions of miles. That's that would have otherwise been hundreds of of human fatalities. What else do you see coming? What else do I see coming? Self driving cars. Yeah. What else? Well, well, what? What else are you what, excited what are you about? Fascinated by right now. 
so we argued about esports once. I argued about that with Matt. <laughs> yeah, I think esports is is being totally rigged by all the rich people who have invested in it. Well, you know, my my business partner Matt owns, I know. owns an esports. Oh, we, have, team. we had a huge argument about it. <laughs> I'm not against it. I just everyone's like it's the next thing. It's a slam dunk. It's like all right. Well, have you ever visited any of these? Yeah, athletes? I know. I'm I'm not against it. A- I, air quotes don't really come across in your podcast, but these are athletes, right? I'm not against it. Have you, just, been, have you been to their I'm homes? I'm always dubious of slam dunks. Yeah. Have you been to their homes at all or anything? No. It's so I've asked. I haven't visited yet, but like they they live together usually. Yeah. And because they have to train together, and a lot of them have trainer like physical trainers now because you need to be like fit and mentally, you know, high mental acuity and quick fingers. You actually fingers have to be like in. Yeah. Yeah. You in don't want to. You yeah. don't have any. Most of these guys are not like the traditional, you know, like pimply fat ass that that gaming nerds have been portrayed to be like remember, no fatigue remember when at all. yeah yeah they also have nutritionists and cooks who live in these houses like this is a real thing like i think you should go visit one of these things i'm not against it <laughs> i i'm always, i i just my guard always goes up whenever people are just telling me what's going to happen with something like that because you know like lots of lots of things sell out arenas sure like monster truck people sell out arenas you're, you're not a grave digger fan uh, not really. Okay. So <laughs> don't underestimate the American people's pension for entertainment. But no, the gaming stuff is fascinating. We don't have a lot of investments in that space, but the ones we do are led by Matt, my Matt Mazio, right. my partner, who understands it incredibly well. I mean, look, I just think you have to believe in the attention, right? Is that, you know, if you're betting against professional sports, you're betting against every trend in attention right now. Yeah. And you're also betting against every trend in identity. And Did you see that study about tribes? Ni- 93 of the 100 events that people watched live last year were like sports events. Yeah. Other than and like seven were scripted the, or non-scripted or the Oscars or something. Like yeah, that, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, humans crave shared experiences. That's just as simple as it is. I mean, God bless the iPod for letting us download all our music and, uh, you know, and play it atomically. So you're listening to one thing, I'm listening to another thing with our headphones, and that's a fun experience. But we've seen the live music business take off. While recorded music has crashed, live music has taken off because we want to go see that with other people. We still go to the theater so we can still laugh with other people. I'm holding up my phone. Yeah. Yeah. You go to a concert now, everyone's just holding up their phone. Yeah. I mean... Facebook Live and Periscope are blowing up because we want to be experiencing the same thing at the same time. Uh, Game of Thrones, I mean, crashed the internet last night. You know, I mean, it's yeah. just people want to watch that thing together. So with esports, I want it to happen because I feel like I was playing video games from basically the moment they were created. You know, like from Pong. What was your first one, Pong? That was your I, first. System. I was. Remember when I. I think we're almost the same age. And television versus Atari was sure. a thing. So yeah. I was in television. Yeah. And then eventually I broke down and also got the Atari 2600. But I hit all, like Nintendo, Sega Genesis. Like I, I went through basically everything all the way through the PS3. And then I finally retired. I grew I up in a very kids. limited television house and no game system house. Ooh. So I had to play them at other kids' houses. Yeah. But that's why I have all the game systems now as an adult, including the Atari 2600. Favorite cartridge? What's your favorite cartridge? Do you remember? Atari Twenty Six Hundred. I love the baseball game. Really? Yeah, I used to love video baseball games, which was like, like I used to love RBI baseball. I loved in television baseball. 
I love baseball and football are my favorites. River Raid, remember that one? Yeah. Yeah. And then for paddles, I love Kaboom. I mean, you could just get into a Kaboom zone right there where you're just scrolling back and forth. I had an intern a few years ago who could do, he was a young kid too. I don't know how he could do this, but he could do the entire first level of pitfall with his eyes closed, going left, not right. But really? Yeah. I mean, it was like he picked it up as a retro cool thing. He could just do it with his eyes closed. My favorite game ever was, I think it was PGA Tour 3 on Sega Genesis. Mm-hmm. It was a golf game. Mm-hmm. It was like 25 minutes was the perfect length. Were you ever Get like to an, play other people? Were you an arcade guy at all? I like, was. Were, were you a golden? I was the only child. Yeah, it was all that stuff. When you golden tee, do you use two thumbs or do you just spin with like do you, do you use the palm of your hand? I use the palm for the hits, but then for putting, I use the the two thumbs. Yeah, which I think is the way to do it. I was a I was a two thumb driver, and I've got a lot of you know I think I've got like some ligament You've damage there. in the thumbs. <laughs> um, so esports, I if I had to bet on it, I would bet okay, fine. But I still don't think it's it's 100% slam dunk. Okay. I still want to see like two years from now, are we at the same point we were right now? Okay. Um, VR yep. feels like even though people are saying it's ready now, I still think it'll take five years to work out all the kinks and everything. And we'll and see one- which platforms win too. Yeah. But shared VR will be unbelievable. Right. So that'll be another one of those communal experiences in VR. Do you worry at all that you can't do anything else when you're doing VR? Yeah, because it did. That is what killed 3D to some degree. Was that if you had 3D glasses on in your house, you couldn't do anything else. My buddy David Yulovich put it. I'm going to get this wrong. Um, you met David? Yeah, you met David. Um, yeah. You know that basically podcasts are passively passive, and one of the reasons why we've seen this research in podcasts is you can do all this other stuff while yep. ingesting a podcast. Right? Video podcasts are actively passive, so you're. You know, you, you have to be watching them, but you can you're not participating in them per se. So you can kind of get some other things done. The way when television's on, you can do that. But but VR is actively active. It's exclusive to everything else you want to be doing. So VR though is you know, which is tough because you you're basically telling people you're doing this. Yeah. So let's let's then uh, cleave off AR, augmented reality. So augmented reality doesn't necessarily take you out of the other things you're doing, right? It could yeah. be a Google Glass type thing or a heads-up display that basically what the Magic Leap guys are working on that lets you see your calendar and all these other things laid over, overlaid over your real-life environment. But And then there's the fully immersive VR stuff, whether it's for an entertainment experience or gaming, et cetera. That's going to require all of you. Let's take a break to talk about our friends at Blue Apron. They know that when you cook with incredible ingredients, you make incredible meals. So they set the highest quality standards for their community of family-run farms, fisheries, and ranchers. Whether it's Japanese ramen noodles, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, or heirloom tomatoes, Blue Apron is bringing you the best for less than $10 per meal. They deliver seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. Right now in April, you can get meals like crispy cod and cabbage slaw tacos with pepita, pineapple, and avocado salsa. You can also get pan-seared pork chops with two cheese, mashed potatoes, and sautéed spinach. I'm getting hungry. Uh, Check out this week's menu and get your two meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash BS. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. I might force my wife to do this because she's letting me down lately with dinners. Anyway, that's blueapron.com slash BS. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. And since we're here, let's talk about audible.com. 
do love books, but you find that you never have time to read them? That's my wife, by the way. My wife keeps popping into these things. She listens to Audible in the car when she's driving with our kids because it's probably better than Howard Stern. Anyway, uh, Audible has the perfect solution. Get audiobooks. Listen to those books you've been meaning to read while on the go at the gym during your commute, like my wife. Audible.com provides over 250,000 titles from leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, magazines, newspaper publishers, and business information providers. Their app is free and it works on iPhones, iPad, Android, Windows Phone. You can download and listen on your Kindle Fire and over 500 MP3 players. You own the books. You can access them. Audible.com also has the great listen guarantee. If you decide you don't like the book you chose, no worries. Exchange it for another title anytime. No questions asked. Two of my friends narrated their own books that are on Audible. Chuck Klosterman and my man Jalen Rose, who I miss dearly. I miss him every day. I miss you, Jalen Rose. Uh, just for my listeners, Audible.com is offering a free 30-day trial membership. Go to audible.com slash BS. Start your free trial today. Back to Chris Saka. We're getting very close to nobody ever having to leave their house. That'd be fun. <laughs> VR, you just get have you, have you Instacart tried any of them? or, or uh, Postmates to bring you food and yeah. you're just home. Have you tried any of them? Any the of the VR? VR? Yeah. No, not yet. Okay. So, I am afraid for my kids a little bit because I do wonder if this VR world you dive into is almost superior to the actual world you're in. And instead of just having human interactions, I can just go into this VR place and do VR things. And that's going to be my that, life. That's very legit. One of the things that's interesting about technology is the improvement in resolution and sound modeling and responsiveness is outpacing our own physiological development. So right. our biology has been kind of the same, you know, and we weren't necessarily built to ingest all this light and all the sound and, and in this incredibly coordinated way. So our biology doesn't actually know what's happening. If you put on even Google Cardboard and watch some of the early videos, there's one, um, what's the name of those guys? Verse, I think, V-R-S-E, who did one with JR, the famous artist where you are on top of a skyscraper and your body will not let you step forward. Like your body is just convinced that is the edge of the skyscraper. Right. You have to intellectually override everything that, you, you know, your brainstem is telling you to like, don't step there because you'll die. And it, it's just, it's fully tricked. And that's not even a super high res or super immersive VR platform. And so we've got some crazy days ahead of us. I mean, this, I remember I had a Sony PSP a long time ago. Remember those yeah. tiny little ones? Sony used to send those. me this stuff. And I was playing Grand Theft Auto once on a flight and I landed and I got in my car and I started driving like an asshole. And like, I'm not a big advocate for game censorship or anything, but I was like, wait a minute. This thing literally just rewired some neural pathways such that it changed how I drove in real life. I have a worse story than that. I every I think every everybody has that one Grand Theft Auto where they just had to finish the game and that's all they did for six weeks or however long mm -hmm, it took. Mm -hmm. I remember going on one of those runs and getting in my car and driving because sometimes the grand theft auto is just fun to run pedestrians over for sure. no reason and i'm in my car i'm like hey there's and i'm like oh no i'm this is real life <laughs> like my brain Bonus had points. been corrupted yeah. to the point like for like a split 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 second yeah i thought i was in the game yeah. i was like this is bad yeah and so I, I i worry about some of that i mean i've i've seen this you've seen this i bet so um you're like i'm not a real celebrity 
but I have a million and a half plus followers on Twitter. Yeah. And so I will be out walking well, you're around. Well, you kind of be here in Shark Tank now. Like, you're much more recognizable but, now. Yeah. So this is more of a data set pre-Shark Tank. Okay. okay? When, and, I would, and I would be walking down the street with a friend of mine in New York who is an actual celebrity. I'll say, like, an Edward Norton. So we're, we're walking side by side. And I watch the difference between how people interact with us. They come up to him, and they literally put their arm out. They, like, our arm's length from him. And they're like, oh, my God, Mr. Norton. Oh, my God, it's so cool to see you. I, I loved you in Primal Fear. Or, like, The Hulk is, like, my favorite movie. You're amazing. You're amazing. And they get legitimately nervous and intimidated by him because he's, like, famous. Right? He's a they famous actor. They don't mention Rounders? <laughs> I think Rounders is awesome. I know. God. I know you love to throw upsetting. cards. But, well, they mention The Hulk, which I find more upsetting. So That's deeply upsetting. But people will come up to me. That, you know, it's fewer people who know me than Edward Norton. But they know me from my tweets. And they have... They're, their brain is convinced we have a connection because they hear from me six to eight times a day and they see pictures of my, of my wife and my kids and you know where I hang out and stuff like that. And so as a result, they don't put out their arm and stay arm's length. They actually come in for the hug. And, and their first statement won't be like, oh, dude, I'm such a huge fan. Their first statement is, so how was dinner last night, man? <laughs> and, and so their brain is convinced we know each other because there yeah. was no biological or historical or evolutionary precedent for hearing from someone six times a day that you don't actually know well. And, and so my wife can pick up on this way better than I can. She'd be like, that is a stranger. That is an absolute stranger. I don't know because their body is so convinced they know me that it convinces my body I know them. And so they're coming in for the hug and I'm like, I, can't, I must know this guy. I must have met him somewhere. And, and that is from 140 characters, right? Like, so when the, I started Grantland, and I think I've talked about this before, but I'll say it again. Like you don't realize you've gotten a little bit old and until you're around young people all the time. And I learned a couple of things just from the first year of Grantland watching the people in their twenties. Like they could, they could listen to a podcast. They could be on Gmail. They could be chatting, but they could also be talking to somebody and they could be working and sending their emails. They could be doing six things at once. And I, I would be looking at like, wow, like I, I can do like two things at once max. So that was one thing. The continuous um, partial attention. My friend yeah, Linda the, Stone called it that. very Continuous partial attention, yeah. And it's like, I think there's a clear age range. I mean, it's, maybe it's like 33. You kind of have had to grow up with the internet a little bit. But now people in their 20s, I've noticed, they're, they consider their friends, like their actual friends, like people they went to college with, high school with, people they room with after. But then also like people online who they met once or twice in their relationship is the online relationship in the emails and chat, whatever else. Those people, like, we tried to hire somebody once, and it was like, oh, so-and-so is friends with them. Yeah, yeah, the, oh, yeah, yeah, they, they've been, and then it turned out they'd never actually met. Right, And right. I was like, I thought you were, like, good friends with them. He was like, I am. I just, we, you know, they, they're in New York, and we're here, and it's like, I was like, wow. I, I've absolutely built relationships with people that follow me on Twitter that I DM with frequently. You feel like they're, they're buddies, but. Yeah. There's a guy named BW. His Twitter handle is BW Jones. He was like one of my very first Twitter followers. And so I just followed him back. I mean, 2007, maybe, right. you know? And, uh, and he and I have gone back and forth thousands of times, maybe. And I met him for the first time just a few months ago. I, he happened to be in LA. I happened to be speaking. I was like, come by. He took some pictures. I shook hands with him for the very first time uh, after like seven, you know, I guess it's nine years now. Yeah. Right? Like, that was totally amazing. But 
there's um there are people like if if I find something interesting, I'll engage. Do you, you know this guy Brian Koppelman? Is the show Billions? Yeah. Do you, is he like a buddy yours? I, pretty decent friend. Yeah, I've, I've never been in the like same room with him, but, but we keep publicly replying to each other and DMing, and I'll. I hope I bump into him when I get to New York. Are you next pro time, billions or anti billions? I love billions. Okay, good. Yeah, there's a few bad castings. Like I, you know, I there are a few, a few characters in there that I just can't believe. But for the most part, the main characters are amazing. The plot's great, and I know, I feel like I know the people on that show. I have a couple quick speed round questions for you. Yeah. Um, what are the apps on your home screen the that one. everyone else should have that you feel like not enough people know about yet? Um. Let's see. Well, Slack. Do you guys use Slack? Love Slack. Okay. Slack changes everything. The the Ringer is uh, very, 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 very Slack friendly. Yeah. So we're, I, I mean, we're Slack investors. I should probably disclose that, but big Slack investors. Do you use Nuzzle at all? Yes. Yeah. N-U-Z-Z-E-L. So. I feel like Nuzzle is about six months where it's from where it's going to be, but I still really like it. It's excellent. Especially if you haven't been able to go on Twitter for for you know 12 hours but you kind of want to have a feel for what happened nuzzle basically if it, for people listening it it is an app that takes every every story that somebody suggested on your twitter feed and just organizes those stories so you don't see the tweets and it's really useful uh i love what else i have periscope here which i love rex hasn't publicly launched it will What's that one? really soon rex rex so rex is good name a way to uh to basically publish post and collect all of your favorite things and so you basically post things that i'll show you like that you know reflect you and kind of so i published this album home again uh this book evicted i've been reading it's amazing this book just mercy um, love that judd apatow show was great and so i put these things up and then people will individually interact with with that and what you can do is if you see somebody else's thing you like you save it to your vault it's called so in my vault, if I'm like sitting down to Spotify and I'm like, I wonder what kind of music I want to listen to. These are all the albums I've vaulted off there to explore new stuff. Or if I get to Netflix. That sounds the, like a very positive app. It, it's it's just an amazing people, app. People it's like. just good. It's good energy all over it. Look, these are all the movies to watch on Netflix. So you know Until how you're somebody always creates, just like. Somebody's going to create bizarro wrecks or just yeah. things I hate. Yeah. Here's six, 16 television shows. Look, there's, uh, there's Horace and Pete. I know you know something about that. Yeah. It is a privilege to be sharing the same couch as Louis C.K. It still smells like him a little bit, doesn't it? A little it? bit. Yeah. Little. So it still has that Horace and Pete bar smell. Yeah. All right. Rex. What was your next one? Um, yeah. Snapchat. Of course. Um, I mean, that's on my home screen. People say Snapchat and Uber are going to be the new companies of this decade. You agree with that? Uh, Uber already is. I mean, it's a... Uh, 60 plus billion dollar well, I got, company we got right four now. years left in the decade i'm oh, saying it's decade? 2020 and we look back yeah U- uber's success and is, they're clearly uh, the inevitable. favorites okay yeah snapchat's amazing I, I think they are innovating incredibly quickly they understand a broad a diverse set of audiences they've shown they can be good partners to content companies uh, they have enough attention they'll have no problem monetizing it I'm, I'm bullish on Snapchat and I'm not an investor. In fact, not only am I not an investor, but those guys came to me after a talk I gave in LA once and said, we really admire your work. We want you involved in the company. And I was like, uh, the dick pics thing, you know, like uh, how it, and clear they hadn't been doing stories yet, which I think yeah. completely transformed that company. But my bad, I went home and told my, uh, I went back to the office and told my younger partner, 
Matt, who's like 10 years younger than I am. And he's like, you said no to Snapchat? What? You know, and like freaking out. But by the time we went back to fix it, it was broken. Uh, so is that your biggest misfire? I mean, I misfire all the time. I told the Airbnb guys that what they were doing was unsafe and somebody was going to get raped and murdered, you know, in the, in a shared house. I told the Dropbox guys that Google, uh, was going to crush them. Google drive. Cause we'd already been using it at Google at the time. Uh, I've got a bunch of these Dropbox to me is, is kind of lurking cause it does seem like we're heading to the Sony thing was really interesting to me. Uh, cause I think it, it put the fear of God into everybody who the Sony owns things. Yeah. It put the fear of God into people who run things or own things that it, they could be next and draw. And so I think guarding information and personal stuff has become more and more and more and more important. And Dropbox is just good at stuff. So Shark Tank's a Sony, a Sony show. Yeah. And the people I communicate with there still don't use their Sony email addresses. <laughs> like, like yeah. we communicate through Gmail. My very first day of visiting the Sony studio to negotiate that deal was the day after it all happened. Oof. Like, they didn't have phone service. Like, the thing was shut down. I have a question for you. Did you go through any of the leaked data? Um, it's a big ethical question. I have a complicated uh, answer to that. No. Um, but I did think about it, and I didn't want to. And I read some of the stories about it. But it just felt wrong. I, I'm like a big karma guy. Yeah. And to me, that felt like bad karma to be like, all right, none of this. I should have no access to this stuff. So I'm going to throw myself into it and read everything. You didn't even go and look for your own name? No. I went, I, I, I searched. I, I believe it. Like now this, I wish I had done that. See, yeah. I felt like that would have been cool to do that. <laughs> so this is going to make me a bad person. But I looked for two things. I looked for my own name. Yeah. Which wasn't in there. Uh, which is good. I don't know if I yeah, expected yeah. it to be, but I was just curious. It's a and win. then, and then I actually used it. I was negotiating my like per episode price on Shark Tank, and I used it to find out what the other sharks made. That was in there. That's and just so smart. There was some back and forth about Cuban's price in there, and I, you know, Cuban's a buddy and a rival, and I like to bust his balls, and I didn't want him to be making a bunch more money than I was. So we, uh, I, that was great data to have. A couple more speed round things. Um, you had. Fairly high profile clashes with CEOs of Twitter and with Uber. Coincidence, or is that part of just who you are and you want to be involved and you have opinions? Yeah, so I don't have a boss, and so there's no filter on me. You sound I'm, like me. Yeah, I'm very, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there there was a legendary guy who just passed away in, in Silicon Valley. Did you hear about Coach Campbell? Yeah, so, I saw the tweets. And, yeah, former yeah, yeah. football coach who went on to be like uh, Larry and Sergey's personal coach, Eric Schmidt, CEO of Google, um, Steve Jobs. He was on the board of Apple. He was the chairman of Intuit. I mean, one of the most widely respected kind of personal coaches in the history of Silicon Valley. And while I wasn't a senior executive at Google, he took me under his wing there as one of his projects. And when I went to leave the company, I had offers to go join hedge funds and other venture funds and stuff. And I said, you know, coach, what should I do? And he said, go on your own because you suck at having a boss. And I was like, you're right. Like I just, it has just been in my DNA from the beginning. Like I always pissed off my teachers and my principals. I always had hearings about whether I was going to be able to stay in school. I, uh, I've been a mess my whole life in terms of authority by the way, I have a two-year-old who is exactly like me right now. Yeah, so usually that's it's, how it's the guy gets you yeah. back. Yeah, uh, but 
but so, and I'm glad I went my own way. I would, I would have never made it in a bigger partnership, but, um, I just, I am not going to bite my tongue if I think something's fucked. Uh, I just can't. And that means that's why I'm sitting here right now instead of, uh, in the Grantland offices. (laughs) I'm well aware, (laughs) uh, you know, but I, I mean, that means like when, when Edward Snowden does something that I think is heroic and patriotic, I will speak out against it, even though that burns some ties with a lot of people at the White House. With you know, I, I'm very close to this White House and this president, and I did a lot of work for them. But I'm not going to kind of, and that's why I'm not an ambassador. You know, uh, I, I'm just not going to read from anybody else's script. Right. And so, um, yeah, and I can be a real pain in the ass to work with because I just don't butter anything up. Kids haven't mailed you out at all. I mean, I love my kids. I, you know, I, I sometimes people have kids and it kind of, they reassess things. It didn't happen for me, unfortunately. Well, no, it does. It, I mean, I spend all my time with my kids. Like I will, I fly home specifically to climb into bed with those kids at night and stuff. So they're four and a half, two and a half and seven months. So my life revolves around them. But Ooh, if, you had the third one, the mistake Uber kid. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but if anything, they have hardened my resolve to just be authentic and, and candid. Yeah. That, you know, I will only do deals that I want to be proud to tell my kids I did. Uh, and I only want to say the things I'm willing to stand by. I, I will just not. I mean, you know, one of the conditions and one of the, we we're going to talk about Shark Tank at some point. But one of the reasons I'm on that show, one of the reasons I love that show is because it's the most authentic show on television. They don't tell us to say anything they don't make us do any deals it is completely unscripted and spontaneous if you see a fight break out between the sharks that's real and authentic if you see a pitch go sideways that's real the only thing that happens they edit it down from an hour-long pitch to eight to ten minutes of television but even then they don't betray the essence of what happened there Um, because most of the questions are boring so the pitches are an hour they're about an hour yeah i mean we get to ask way more questions there than i do at a you know, a product, a new product demo day in Silicon Valley, but it's an amazing show because I just get to say exactly what's on my mind and be as candid as I want, um, which is not something you get to do in most shows on television. Uh, in fact, the, the episode that's coming up this Friday, Cuban and I go at it, uh, which we normally do in private, but we do, we go at it on the show. And, uh, I think he drops an S bomb at some point. I was like, are you leaving it in? And I, last I heard they're leaving it in the show. So it's awesome. So how many shows do you do with him a year? Uh, last year, or in this in this season, I did four episodes. I was originally slated to do one or two, but we had a really good time and a lot of chemistry, so I came back. I'm going to have to mail you a couple like Dallas Maverick Cuban insults <laughs> that if it gets heated, you'd be like, well, that's why you thought the Dampier contract yeah. was a good idea. No, I literally, I, I literally, uh, who's the guy they lost? Like, right? Which guy? Because we, ta- we tape in like June and September. Oh, DeAndre but, Jordan. Yes, yes. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I I dropped that literally right before cameras rolled, and I'm like, I'm sorry, too soon, too soon, and it just it always blows up. Like you can see, he and I fight on Twitter. That's how I ended up on the show. I was. But Cuban loves it though. I mean, it's it's not like a mean spirited thing with him. He like he just likes dropping the gloves. He, we're homies. We yeah. love it. But but one of the we've reasons, gone at it a couple of times. It was yeah. always good natured. He's a good guy. Yeah, but it's fun. I get to make fun of him. See, like you get to make fun of him for sports stuff. I get to make fun of him for bad investments too. Right. He's had like a few. his political stops and starts. By the way, can I make a prediction for your yeah. audience? I think he's going to be president of the United States. Mark Cuban. Mark Cuban, I think, will be president of the United States. In the next 
But 2024? I think Hillary Clinton wins this election and probably holds on for two terms. And then I think it's an open field, and I think Mark Cuban runs as a very moderate Republican and wins. So think about it. Donald Trump, one of the things I've learned that's just been wild about my own personal journey and watching Cuban and watching Trump is that the minute you're labeled a billionaire in this country, everyone takes everything you say as Bible. It's just you, you can do no wrong. Like they just think, well, that guy's smart. He made a bunch of money. He must be a genius. And it's completely untrue, obviously. You know a lot of billionaires who are wrong about a lot of things. Like, I love Mark Cuban, but I think he happens to be wrong more than he's right, and that's why we become good friends. But you listen to people who support Donald Trump, and you see they just eat at the trough of his bullshit, but they they think it's just all inherently true because, look, the guy's a billionaire. He made these businesses. The United States is a country. It should be run like a business, so let's hire a really successful businessman and do it. And... I think Cuban has all of that. Like, watch the engagement he has on Twitter, and you'll see people just take what he says as gospel completely. So he's like and a so benevolent Trump. He's, that's exactly right. I think he's not an idiot, and he actually does care, and he does read, and he is convincible on some things. Well, he also but, he was a great sports owner. I got to say, when he came in, people only owned a team one kind of way. And if it was kind of the egomaniac sports owner who always went the Steinbrenner type of way. And Cuban bought the team and was like, well, why do you do it this way? Well, why do we do it this way? Well, why don't we have nicer locker rooms? Well, why don't, why isn't our plane awesome? Well, why don't we hire more stack guys? And he just kept asking questions and it became a real competitive advantage for them. And then people ended up just emulating him. I think America loves that guy. I think he's not an idiot. People take him at his word because he's a billionaire. I think he's got crossover appeal. Uh, he's the American dream. I'm just I'm putting it right out there right now that right. Mark Cuban will be president of the United States. Um, and he can use the uh, Stairmaster while he's giving interviews, <laughs> which I've always been impressed by. Co- have you had interactions with Kobe or no? Because Kobe wants to be Walt Disney. Yeah, I, I have actually. Um, so a few years ago, Kobe reached out to me through somebody and said he wanted to meet me. And that was weird because I'm not I grew up in Buffalo, so I don't really care about the NBA. Yeah. Because uh, they took your team. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I grew up I grew up caring about football and hockey. Yeah. That's why you and I see each other at Kings games. Yeah. Uh, but I just couldn't care less about the NBA. I'm sorry to lose all the audience I haven't already lost it's to fine. you. But so Kobe reaches out, and I was like, nah, do I take the meeting? And my partner, Matt, who grew up in L.A., is like, what are you talking about? Like, it's the Pope is asking for a meeting here. you got to take this meeting. So... Literally on the way to the meeting. Joe's, Joe's excited. He's an LA are you, fan. Are you a super fan? Yeah, Joe. The piece, yeah. He doesn't know where the story's going, but he's all happy. Look at him. Do you have any tattoos? Do you have any <laughs> no, Kobe no, related? Not that yeah. bad. Okay. Not that bad. So, so we're in an Uber on the way down. We were meeting in Laguna. And I'm literally looking at his Wikipedia page to be like. Yeah. You're studying I, up. I, I mean, I remember the 81 point game. Yeah. Like, I knew he grew up in, in Italy for a while. I knew he didn't go to college. I knew a few things about this guy. But so we sit down. Uh, and we were at a bar and this is while he was, he was still rehabbing his ankle or his Achilles. Um, and first of all, one of the creepiest things I've ever seen ever, like I've seen now some certain kinds of fan interactions, but a guy walked up this burly guy and he handed Kobe, uh, this, he like reached past the bodyguard and handed him this really fruity drink with umbrellas and stuff and just said, 
Hey, Kobe, I just want to say this for you, man. I'm a big fan. There's no roofies in it or nothing. It's just, it's all good. Oh, yeah. And I was definitely like, want to drink that. that oh, my God. That was like the creepiest handoff I've ever seen of a yeah. beverage. But so Kobe sat down and um, and just said, look, I'm really interested in startup stuff. I'm really interested in investing. I'm really interested in you know being an entrepreneur. And, and again, my partner, Matt, is just like sweating uh, yeah. because he can't believe he's in the presence of, of greatness like this. And I'm like, look, honestly, I see a lot of celebrities as tourists who come through this industry and think they can just kind of cherry pick a couple of things and tweet about it and it's going to work out. I'm a businessman. Yeah. yeah there are some. No, you're a small forward. Um, actually, one of the ways that Edward Norton and I became actual friends is that guy's brilliant and he's built companies. He's the CEO of a of a bio energy company right now. He built CrowdRise with his wife and some other founders. Like the guy is smart and hustles and works hard, right? But there's a lot of guys and gals who just pass through this business thinking they can do something. And so I said, look, if you're serious about this, then prove it to me. And so I said, I'm going to send you a bunch of stuff that you should read and a bunch of TED Talks and other videos you should watch. And if you do your homework, then I'll talk to you about investing. And so it was it was funny because I didn't think he was going to do it. I thought it was kind of a nice way to like let him he down. He doesn't easy. sleep. Of course he did it. I, I didn't know this I, about yeah, him. Yeah, I think he's up twenty four hours a day. I, I had no idea about this. Yeah. So sure enough, for the next few months, my phone never stops buzzing in the middle of the night. It is Kobe reading this article, checking out this tweet, following this guy, diving into this TED talk, diving into the Y Combinator demo day stuff, and I'm getting these texts at like literally two or three in the morning, and my wife is like. Are you having an affair with Kobe Bryant? <laughs> like what? What is happening here? Like he just that would have been an incredible hours, story. That would have that would have yeah. definitely broken some news. But it was just at all hours, and the guy was serious. He was bringing the same obsessive work ethic to learning about startups that he does to training, to rehab, to his thousand makes a day, to everything. I, I was fascinated by it. So I ended up actually becoming really enthralled by him because this is a a very unique personality type that I only kind of see in some of our very best entrepreneurs. Like Travis Klanick at Uber, um, I don't know if you if you know this story already, but it's New Year's Day, 2010, I believe. So Uber was already a thing. Travis is staying at our house up in Truckee, came up. Uh, we, we always have a New Year's party. And my dad was there, and my dad you know, says, Travis, let's play Wii Tennis, Nintendo Wii Tennis. And Travis is like bleary-eyed and hung over the night before. And so without... Like he's sitting on the couch. My dad is standing up. You know, as they start playing, my dad's like taking tennis swings, and Travis is just making these little tiny chops with the controller, and he's kicking the hell out of my dad. My dad's like starting to break his sweat and trying harder and harder, and Travis keeps winning. And then Travis does this Princess Bride thing where he's like, "I'm sorry, Mr. Saka, but I gotta just tell you, I'm not left-handed," and so he starts playing right-handed, and my dad never scores a point again, and my dad is visibly frustrated. Like, what the hell is going on? And at the point my dad's about to blow a stack, Travis says, okay, Mr. Sack, I'm sorry. I got to show you something. And he uses the little wand, and he moves over to the global leaderboard, and he is ranked number two in the entire world at Wii Tennis while also being the CEO of Uber. True story. <laughs> like, <laughs> he is one of the most obsessive and competitive people in the history of anything. And I, and I saw that in Kobe. And so I ended up saying, hey, Kobe, why don't you, now that he's done all his homework, I'm like, come up to Silicon Valley. I want to show you some companies. So I took him to big companies like Twitter, uh, which were a blast. And, you know, all the management team got together and fell over themselves to be in the room with him. And it was fun because 
you get to a level in that game where you're not just good at the game, but you understand the business around it too. And so we were talking with Adam Bain and Nathan Hubbard and guys up there that you know about the mechanics of the revenue and the rev share deals around those NBA clips and stuff. And there was Kobe right in the middle of that discussion. Um, and then we went and visited small companies like Style Seat, where they're, they're like an Uber for salons, an amazing service, but they were 11 people working out of a one-bedroom apartment, basically illegally. And I was like, look, these are the bookends of how this, this industry works. Um, and he was enthralled by it. And he's gone on to make some investments. He's starting some stuff. Kobe Inc. Yeah, Kobe's legit, though. I. He's just one of those so you, guys that I so think you're is... So you're literally buying Kobe stock. Yeah. I don't think he's a pretender about that stuff. I don't either. I think it takes a little while. You know, oftentimes your first few investments are just a miscue because you're flattered anyone even wants you to invest or you think you can be more helpful than you are. But uh, but you, I, I think he can be great at this. You left out one important thing with Kobe, which you were, you were halfway there with, with how competitiveness and how important it is for investors. He's competitive with magic. Because they have like who's the greatest Laker of all time, and both of them like yeah. oh no, Kobe, and both of them deep down think they're the greatest Laker of all time. Yeah, and now Magic has parlayed his basketball career into this whole lucrative business career. Right, and anytime somebody points to oh who's the most successful athlete turned, they always say Magic first. And Kobe is a competitive psycho, and he's looking at it, it's like five years from now they're going to say me, they're not going to say Magic. You know what Magic doesn't Brown. have that Kobe does is China. That, right, that guy owns that country yes it oh my god it'll be to the amazing point to that i could see him playing like a 20 game season there to just make it even more it's dangerous crazy. for him to be over there like it's just yeah. the, the the crowds are unbelievable so you know it's funny kobe and i um collaborated on something briefly that we we're um uh, we were setting up for him i was like so what should we call it like mamba or whatever and he came back and said no no, no i want to call it 13 do you know why 13 it's sports related I don't know. And this was like two years ago. He said, can you believe they drafted 12 other motherfuckers before me? Like, he still wears that, man. He Brady's, still wears that. Tom Brady's the same way. He knows every quarterback that got drafted ahead of him in the 2000 draft. He could just rattle them off. And their combined yardage compared to his. Oh, yeah. yeah. He knows all of them. Like, all of them, the aggregate. They're all maniacs. Like, that guy still wears that, man. That's, that is amazing. That's a good place for us to end because we went way longer than I thought we were going to go. But you can come back. Right on. We can. We should do one. We should do a three-person one with you and one other person that Who we should we just, gang up on. I don't know. Maybe we'll get Cuban. That'd be fun. You, me, and Cuban. That'd be super we could fun. Argue about stuff. I'll We're, just start fights with you. It's pretty fun. No one, no one on Shark Tank has ever been there to keep that guy honest, and so right. I may or may not be returning next season. I may or may not be making an announcement about that on Friday. So, <laughs> so this uh, Friday, Shark Tank, you're going to yeah. announce like, yeah. Uh, I may or may not. One, ABC. I periscope after the. I, I periscope during the episodes. That makes Disney ABC a little bit nervous sometimes that I'm actually like live broadcasting TV and talking over it. See, that it, was. Wait, we'll save that for next time because no. I really want to know what's going to happen with all this Facebook Live stuff. Where like I went to the Triple G fight on Saturday. If I had just Facebook Lived it. Yeah. Nobody would have had to have HBO and they could have watched it from where my seat was. How is that legal? Feels but like it would have been value toward... added. I mean, you should do that deal with HBO. Not they if it's said, coming Look. on. Yeah, but not if it's coming on 20 seconds before the feed that HBO has, because I'm sure they have to send it around, right? I'm coming yeah. ahead of them. And Without, I don't know. You remember my really tall buddy who was in Montana? I don't yeah. want to, but he said he would have done anything to watch that Golden State game with you. 
right? The Golden State game that was going on while we were there. He's oh. like, I would do anything to sit down and watch that game with Bill Simmons. Just for the like guy, for the basketball yeah, guy. Yeah, got it. Yeah, just like, <laughs> but just you periscoping your, you know, Mystery Science Theater 3000 or whatever, but as a value-added service, man, people would pay for that. That's probably where, uh, I'm guessing that's where broadcast rights are going, where you just get to pick your own announcers. Everyone hates whatever announcers they're stuck with, with the exception of like five people. But if I could watch you shoot the shit and have a couple other buddies there busting balls, so this is what... Yeah, I didn't get sued. The East Coast feed of Shark Tank, I like live tweeted, I play ball with everybody else. The West Coast feed, by then we're, we're kind of Director's toasted. cut, yeah. yeah. I basically put it up on a projector and I periscope me and my buddies talking over the episode and thousands of people every friday love the hell out of it it's just fun i just bust periscope. balls and make fun yeah periscope best product that not enough people use yeah well again. i like periscope it's just for whatever reason facebook live they figured out how to just make it more accessible uh, you're not gonna hear any argument from me i know all right uh what's Thanks your, what's your here, twitter handle i'm saka on twitter s-a-c-c-a yeah. but i'm c saka on Snapchat. Some other Saka got there oh, first. Man. So the I'm Mr. S-A-C-C on This was fun. Thank you. Yeah, Thanks man. for Thanks coming. Thanks for having me around. Appreciate it. Right on. Thanks to Chris Saka for a great podcast. Just a heads up, we are launching the Ringers NFL show and the Ringers NBA show tomorrow, which is Friday. I'm going to be hosting the first Ringers NBA show, so look forward to that. Guests to be determined, um, but you can sign up for those feeds as soon as we have those up and you have more podcasts from the Ringer Podcast Network. Thanks to Blue Apron for sponsoring today's BS Podcast. Uh, Check out this week's menu at Blue Apron and get your two meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash BS. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't rate. That's that's blueapron.com slash BS. Thanks as well to audible.com. They have over 250,000 titles from all kinds of publishers that you can choose from. And they also have the Great Listen Guarantee. If you decide you don't like the book you chose, no worries. Exchange it for another title anytime. No questions asked. Just for my listeners, audible.com offering a free 30-day trial membership. Go to audible.com BS today to start your free trial. And you can get Jane LaRose's book, Chuck Klosterman's book, lots of good books on there. Also, uh, don't forget to subscribe to The Ringer's newsletter at theringer.com. Don't forget to check out our new podcast that we're launching this weekend, the NFL show and the NBA show, both with The Ringer. And uh, don't forget about After the Thrones on HBO. And now, Sunday night, late, 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 a couple hours after the Pacific airing of Game of Thrones. Enjoy the rest of the week. Anytime y'all want to see me again, rewind this track right here, close your eyes, and picture me rolling.